our next speaker is Dr. Alex Dunn, who was a Monash Medical School um, graduate who is currently completing his physician training at Monash Health. Um, he's a founding member of the very exclusive SSIP club, where members dress up in costumes, drink copious amounts of booze and salute Soviet flags. They recently attended their first trivia night dressed as the Thunderbirds, so that would have been a lot of fun. <laughs> um, that's all I have to say. Alex Dunn. Oh, um, I'm having microphone stand height issues tonight. Thank you so much. It's my absolute pleasure to be here tonight. I'm so excited and uh, thank you very much for your attention. Tonight's topic is uh, very easy to speak about because across any survey you care to look about, uh, the majority fear this more than dying itself. This is this. It's the age-old battle between the tongue and the brain. It's a, a war that I'm waging this very moment and it's a disorder that will be suffered by at least three other speakers uh, for the rest of this evening. Imagine a paralysis that's as sudden and severe as it is unpredictable. It's being the human equivalent of a scratch CD. Imagine standing on a crisp London morning in the mid-1930s, standing behind a lectern and losing your control, losing your body and losing your composure in front of 30,000 people and now broadcast your shame across a quarter of the globe's population for whom, over whom you preside. Mark Twain said that there are two types of speakers in this world, those who get nervous and those who are lying. <laughs> the individual that I'm referring to is of course King George VI. He's the father of our current queen, well, depending on uh, where you sit, our queen. And uh, he was the subject of a very good uh, recent Tom Hooper film, The King's Speech, if you haven't seen it but he was the king that was never meant to be. See, Albert, as he was born, was a dyspeptic, left-handed, knock-kneed little runt of a child. He was born in 1895, and from that who, from the age of eight, cultivated the most debilitating of stammers, one that would haunt him for the rest of his life. Stuttering's an age-old affliction. It's mentioned three times in the book of uh, Isaiah in the eighth century BC. The Egyptians even had their own hieroglyph dedicated purely to stuttering. Duke Albert, as he was born, joined Aesop, Aristotle, Virgil and Charles Darwin as famous but very high-achieving stutterers. While the exact mechanisms of stuttering are still very much debated, Albert had nearly every risk factor you could imagine. First, he was born a man to domineering parents. He grew up needing to wear these painful metal braces on his legs for a valgus deformity of his knees. As a left-hander, he was forced to use his right hand for his entire life in the right kind of tradition. And as was customary, he barely met his parents until he was five years old, being looked after and mostly beaten by his nurse matrons. In another victory for a healthy social development, his parents decided that he should be homeschooled. And so really, his first encounter with the normal outside world was at military school where he went was about 14. 
where by all accounts, in his own diaries, he was mercifully, mercilessly bullied as well. In the uh, most pertinent example that the more things change, the more things stay the same, the boarders at the uh, military academy, the naval academy where he was, they like to reenact Bastille Day by putting the uh, Duke of Cambridge's head over the side of the windowsill and dropping the window sash down on top of his head. He graduated at age 17, 68th and last in his year. So the villain of this tale, and it wasn't any of those guys, it was his handsome elder brother David. So he did a Craig Thompson before Craig Thompson did it, working his way quietly through the wives and the prostitutes of Europe with taxpayer money. And by comparison, little Bertie, he was shy, he was nervous, and when he was put under duress, was unable to spout out his own name. He was second in line for the throne, and so this Duke was always earmarked for a long career in the Navy, but soon had to be discharged on medical grounds for a non-healing ulcer, having only seen a few weeks of military service in World War I. But his salvation and the hero of tonight, and my topic tonight, was the son of an alcoholic publican, a sunburnt larrikin from my hometown of Adelaide. His name was Lionel Logue. He's a descendant of a, a Dubliner, a migrant, Edward Logue, who came to Adelaide in uh, 1850 as a settler and in a sterling act of patriotism set up a brewery that would eventually become the West End Brewery. His son married a local girl and he too became a publican. They had four boys of their own and the eldest was Lionel. So despite living most of his life in the UK, Lionel's story is so unbelievably, and, uh, so unbelievably Australian and contemporary, I think it really... Um, withstands sort of today's scrutiny as well. So he grew up and he learned his craft on the sticky floor of the Elephant and Castle Hotel, which still uh, stands on West Terrace, still an active pub today. He went to the same school and returned as a teacher around the time my grandfather attended Prince's. But academically average, he'd always excelled at the art of captivating audiences with the spoken word. In an age before cinema and widespread radio access, Lionel was famous for his ability to recite the full two and a half hours of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol without a single note. In a cash grab, he drifted across to Kalgoorlie in the mines, and after marrying and having a child of his own in Perth, he and a wife left the baby behind for a gap year in the US. <laughs> he called it, and this isn't, a, this isn't a value statement, he called it the land of graft, dishonesty, and prostitutes, a delightful place to live but eventually settled in the UK and with a boat fetched his children. And although he had no qualifications, the Arcee Logue, he uh, rented some rooms in uh, Harley Street, London's premier medical street, where he was surrounded by physicians and quickly and quite deservedly established a reputation as one of the forefathers of modern speech pathology. Although he was only 34, he had this arthritic knee, which meant that he was too old to contribute to World War I. But uh, his first patients were the tortured soldiers of the French, uh, the French trenches. Many of these guys, they uh, returned with this uh, pharyngeal scarring from mustard gas, which uh, we still, the cousins of which these products we still use today to treat leukemias. At the time, there was this conjecture about what actually caused a stutter. They always concentrated on the tongue. It was either too strong or too weak. The gold standard treatment before he came along was just to uh, electrocute the thing, put two electrodes and zap it. And unsurprisingly, when that didn't work, they would progress to the much more scientific haphazard surgical resection in an area pre-anesthetics and pre-antibiotics. But 
quite astutely, given his public and upbringing, Lionel was among the early recognisers of the benefits that uh, getting booze made to stammering, <laughs> while nerves made them appreciably worse. He recognised the role of rhythm as a lover of poetry, and he noticed how people, and I quote again, with these defects can sing quite easily and shout at games, but the ordinary procedure of buying a train ticket or being asked to be directed in the street holds untold agony. It was still a society that was enchanted by Freudian psychology, but Logue believed that the problem was purely physical. He could reportedly spot stammerers from across the street just by their stance, long before they'd ever started speaking. For those of you who have seen the film, the techniques that they show, the mouthful of pebbles, the jumping, the swearing, the fuckity, 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 fuck, 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 all historically accurate. Although in 30 years of uh, diary keeping and extensive um, newspaper clip keeping, Logue never broke the confidence of his star pupil. Yes, true, he was uh, contacted by the concerned uh, to be queen at that stage, but unlike the film, the two had actually worked together for 10 years uh, before Albert's father, the king, passed away. Appointments were twice a week in his rooms for the uh, equivalent modern fee of about 180 quid per session. They toiled away for another six months when his elder brother David, the uh, handsome uh, Craig Thompson, who then became uh, King Edward, decided that his love for a twice-married uh, American, sorry, twice-divorced American socialite would come above his uh, duties as king, and he stepped off the throne. So only 10 months after his father died, little birdie was plonked onto the throne, but this time reborn as George VI. In truth, most of his stammers had actually already been treated successfully by then. And far from the uh, decrepit flat that they show in the film, uh, the Logues lived in a 25-room estate with five bathrooms, large grounds, significant hunting rights and servants. He did pretty well for himself. But the war speeches, the Christmas addresses, they remained genuine nightmares all throughout his life. The heavily rehearsed but heartbreaking Wembley address that I referred to before from the young Duke can still be seen on YouTube in its original form right now. Right up into his death, King George's written language was really carefully modified. Cruelly for his job, the words king and queen had to be avoided as much as possible. Throughout the war, he was there right throughout the course of World War II, windy beaches would have to become storm-swept beaches and crisis and guns were words that were almost speech killers. But with work, extensive pre-recordings, with practice, endless rehearsal, these speeches became manageable. The King and Logue would continue to work, uh, would continue to write to each other, I beg your pardon, uh, socially for the remainder of their lives. Logue would visit Buckingham Palace every Christmas day to sit beside the King during his annual Christmas address. Exactly as it was described or as exactly as it was depicted. Window open, jacket off, standing up nice and tall, the fresh cigarette just to warm up the apparatus. <laughs> so these unlikely pair of friends, they died within a few years of each other. The king of lung cancer in his 50s, Lionel of kidney disease in his 70s, but not before Logue was uh, awarded, he was uh, recognised as a member of the Royal Victorian Order, especially by the king. He sat in the royal box at the time of his coronation, and while his techniques were somewhat revolutionary, there's no doubting that the nurture and the mateship shown to this accidental, awkward and lonely naval officer proved the best tonic of all. And it armed him with the tools to battle on for as long as he did.
Thank you so much.